0: This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. We're talking today with Dr. Timothy O'Malley, who's the Director of Education at the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. He also serves as the Academic Director for the Notre Dame Center for Liturgy. He teaches and researches at Notre Dame in the areas of liturgical sacramental theology, catechesis, and aesthetics, and he's a member of the executive planning team for the USCCB's Eucharistic Revival. We've talked to him here on the show before. You can find the archives over at OutsideTheWalls.com, and we've talked about his numerous books, uh, many of which on the Eucharist, which is the subject of our topic today, but a little bit of a different tact than we've done in the past, because uh, previously we've been talking to some extent about... how we understand the Eucharist and how we the things that we believe about the Eucharist. Today we're going to be talking about how the Eucharist forms us individually and as a parish. He has a new book out called Becoming Eucharistic People: The Hope and Promise of Parish Life, uh, published by Ave Maria Press. It's part of the Engaging Catholicism series from the McGrath Institute for Church Life at Notre Dame. Dr. O'Malley, thank you for being with us today.
1: Oh, uh, I'm always, uh, it's such a delight to be on, and thanks for inviting me back again.
0: So I'm intrigued by this specifically um, because you use the term in the book, a Eucharistic culture. And one of the things that culture draws to mind is that it is something that we participate in, but which is bigger than we are. It's not something that we set uh, so much as something that we uh, we embody something that forms us. Something that, you know, if you if you're in the business world and you talk about company culture, it's a measure by which you look at all the actions that you do. There's all kinds of things to culture, but it's not something that I can just pull off all by myself, uh, just by having the right belief or or spending enough time in a book. It's something that requires the whole community to be part of. So, as you're talking about becoming a, a eucharistic people, this plural, uh, comprehensive word, what does it look like? Not just to go to mass and to have mass as an event or to have transubstantiation as a belief, but to have Eucharist at the center of who we are as culture.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, so I should note that like all my books, the title ended up not being mine. I Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I had a title that no one liked and it was rejected immediately by the publishers. They came up with becoming Eucharistic people and they actually captured something that I didn't, which is that really the proposal of the Eucharist is so closely linked to the language of the church, right? Like what does it mean to be the church? We're not a gathering of individual believers who just happen to engage in this or that religious practice. And in this case, right, the Eucharist, Uh, But actually, it's it's constitutive or essential to the identity of the church to understand us as a Eucharistic people, right? Um, We are a people who gather around a memory, right? Uh, A memory that becomes present, but a memory of what God has done for us, that we're convoked by God, that it's God's action first rather than our own that really matters. We're convoked by the sacrifice of love. The presence of Christ that dwells convokes us, right? If I was to create a community of the blessed, um if I was commu- like create my own religion, I would probably assemble people like me, that look like me, that thought like me, and that yet the Lord has convoked all the people, right? annoying people, um uh you know, beautiful people, ugly people, all the people have been convoked, not because we decided to sit down and be like, "All right, what would it take to create a church?" but because the Lord convoked us. And that's what it means to call the church Eucharistic through and through the the Eucharistic identity of the church. We are the convoked ones, the ones convoked. And that means we belong to one another to worship the Lord, right? Not to just belong to one another, but because we've been convoked by the incarnate word Christ who dwelled in time and space. And so uh, they got the title better, right? I was like, Eucharistic culture is what I'm interested in. And they're like, no, what you're really talking about is what it means to belong to a Eucharistic people. Yeah. Yeah.
0: As everyone, most of the people here listening know, I came from the Protestant tradition into the Catholic Church about uh, 12 years ago. And it's interesting to me because in the Protestant Church, the the individual experience is much more emphasized in the teaching, but you see a really vibrant culture around the people who gather. Uh, Small groups and prayer chains and people caring for one another uh, and people that you like to see. and. It's interesting because in the Catholic Church our theology is much more communal and corporate and yet in many of the parishes I've I've been to I I get a sense that we sometimes struggle with what it means to belong to that culture and to one another unless that's just a church you've been in for for generations. What does it look like for us to uh, to get beyond going to mass and and then heading for the door as soon as it's over? Uh, and treating Eucharist as something merely to be consumed rather than something that consumes us.
1: Yeah. So we do belong to one another and it comes with the costs, right? I think part of it is the cost up front even. So, you know, I remember once I went to a monastery and we were there, I was there for something from work and we got rushed into the mass that that we were supposed to go to. And I was very thoughtlessly just sort of singing and actually singing rather loud. And this sort of old grumpy monk came up to me and was like, that's too loud, quiet. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, the, the my first thought was, oh man, that is not hospi- hospitality. Um, but actually the deeper thought was, you know, I actually was singing loud and my voice was standing out above everyone else's voice. And I was turning the worship right into my own private experience of Tim rejoicing perhaps in his own like decent sounding voice and i think one of the things that that belonging to a community is right so so the publicness of it begins even as we pray right how do we belong to each other as we stand next to each other and worship together next to each other how do we let our voices resonate with one another and not try to overpower one another this begins from the beginning right i'm not if it was just an individual private prayer all by myself, then I could do it within my home. I could do it, you know, if it was just about a certain sort of spiritual grace, I'm doing it in the communion of all the believers. So in some sense, it begins even in the worship, but even afterwards, it requires us to know each other, right? To to pray for each other, to understand that what I do in mass extends outside of mass to the concrete love of the neighbor. So... And I don't just mean like, you know, being sent out, which is often said, but that that I belong to you. You belong to me. When I, you know, when we worship in separate places on Sundays, which we do, right, because we don't live in the same place, we belong to one another, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, You're with me and I am with you. And that's part of our belonging to one another. And that's part of what we bring to Mass. It's not private. It's not just... Individual Tim, but it's this communion. I should lastly say that that also means that like my personal private preferences for this or that uh, Sort of liturgical style perhaps matters less than my belonging to this group of people right like it's not Assembling the group of people just like me, but it's actually called out of myself to belong to the people that I actually live closest to Um, right my neighborhood, you know, uh, I see the people I live with at my parish I get to know them, right? I might not love the music all the time, but that's the place I belong because that's where Christ comes to me and calls me to this relationship with this people.
0: You bring up the monastery. And one of the things that is a um, maybe a characteristic of the monastery that we don't often think about is that the monks probably get on one another's nerves from time to time. And yet there is this- It happens, it happens, I've heard. <laughs> there is this sense that- you can't get away from your problems. You live with your problems. You you live in community. And perhaps it's just a feature of of Western uh, Christianity. Perhaps it's a feature specifically in America, but we like to avoid our problems. And, and I wonder how often we do that at the expense of Eucharistic culture and Eucharistic community.
1: Yeah, all the time. I mean, that's the thing is we belong to each other, right? I mean, uh, you know, parents have to learn this, right? You, you don't get to choose your children, um, right? You know, they come into your life. They come into, you know, whether you have children biologically, you adopt the children, they come into your life and you adjust to them, right? Mm-hmm. You don't get to shape them. The The baby that doesn't sleep, you don't, you don't get to say, baby, you're going to be a sleeping baby. Baby's like, no, I don't sleep. So, <laughs> you, you know, we adjust to each other. We... And I think, right, like that's the task of communal life is to adjust to each other, to belong to each other. And, you know, if we're just doing that all by ourselves, that's hard enough. But the kind of gift of the Eucharist is that it's Christ's sacrifice, right? When I am raised up on the cross, I will draw all men to myself, right? I'll draw all to myself, right? That's the sacrifice that's offered. It's the, it's Christ's love that draws us together, right? Right. love one another as I have loved you right that this is the love that draws us together it's what Saint Augustine meant by calling us the body of Christ and then the Eucharist we are to become what we've received a community that walks with each other even in our um obnoxiousness and we're all a little bit, bit obnoxious now and again
0: mm-hmm. in this book um first of all uh, it's I want to point out that not only can you get this book individually, wherever fine books are sold, it's uh, on Ave Maria Press, but you can also, as a parish, uh, get a number of these books in bulk for a greatly reduced price. It also comes with a, a discussion guide. It's in English and Spanish. It's a perfect opportunity as a culture Uh, rather as a parish, to begin to try and meditate on the mystery of the Eucharist to build that culture. But in this book, you take us through a number of different aspects of culture. Um, You talk about uh, Eucharistic uh, reverence, about formation, uh, about popular piety, and about, uh, lastly, that culture of solidarity. And I'm assuming that that in that you're referencing not only external solidarity, but also again, that internal coherence with one another.
1: Yes, I'm doing all those things.
0: So let's these four things are are distinct, and you've you've brought them out, but they are also pointing towards that central culture how How do each of these in your mind, help us form that culture of a parish. So let's begin with reverence. Uh, What does Eucharistic reverence look like? Because that's kind of a word that gets thrown around to mean maybe a specific liturgical style. Uh, And and I, I take it that you mean that in a deeper way.
1: Yeah. I mean, I am, I should note that I believe what the church teaches relative Mm -hmm. to the liturgy, right? So if you look at the books, there are options that are given Latin can be used. It can also not be used. Um, the in the 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 latin chant or the chant can be used or something else can be used i'm very uh obedient to to the life of the church um so i don't mean some idealized tim version of the perfect liturgy right whatever that is what i mean is that when we go to mass something very 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 real is happening right a gift of love is being given salvation is at stake for certain men and women, right? Uh, of course, the Eucharist isn't necessary for salvation, right? Um, in the sense that if you don't receive it, then you're not saved. But I'm saying for a lot of us, our salvation is in fact at stake. My life is being offered back to the Father, right, at Mass. I'm encountering the Eucharistic Lord at Mass. That Lord is taking me up into the mystery of himself, Um My sorrows, my joys, my sufferings, my delights, they're all taken up into God's life. Something real is happening. And if your parish is irreverent, it's really kind of what Pope Francis meant uh, in his most recent document on liturgical formation, where he is just like a little letter in which he describes like, you know, when we go to mass, the same events that took place to the disciples now are available to us. There he is. Reverence comes from that, and that's what I mean. Something real is at stake now. For a lot of places, that's going to be Latin. For well, I should say, for a few places. For some, for a lot of places, it won't be. But it's that spirit that there's something real, something at stake. That it's an encounter with the risen Lord. That's my interest.
0: In your book, um, born again Catholic, you talk some about the the. Uh... The benefit of the repetition of the mass, the benefit, you know, we, we hear people complain about that boredom, but to say that here in, in this place, this repetition, this echoing, this catechesis, as it were, um, can if we allow it to can form us if we if we actually lean into the fact that we've heard these words over and over again and lean into the fact that we know exactly what's going to happen next and allow that allow it allow ourselves to see beyond that one moment right in front of us whatever that be into the the thing that it is an icon of into that mystery that it's revealing um then we can actually be formed by it rather than just endure it.
1: Yeah, I think that repetition—and I think that's why reverence matters, right? So repetition at its worst becomes just doing the same thing again and again and thinking that you are proving to God, right, that or, or, or sort of like wooing God to believe that you're holy and therefore God should attend to you. It can become forgetfulness, right? Um, real reverence— Real reverence, even in the midst of repetition, involves awareness of what you're doing, right? How many times have I done the sign of the cross? And yet in doing the sign of the cross, right, what am I doing, right? If I think about what I'm doing, conscious in some sense, I am marking every part and corner of my body with the sign of Christ's instrument of love right and i do that again and again i can do it thoughtlessly i can do it consciously and i think reverence involves an awareness of what we're doing and why we're doing it it doesn't mean endlessly explaining it um right and um, it doesn't mean confusing the action for like an for reading a textbook on the mass mm-hmm. rather it just means being aware of what we're doing and being conscious of it, it's like the first time you hold your a baby, your child. You don't, right, right. I, I assume you're a dad, so you know this. Like as you get really comfortable with infants, you're like really kind of almost sloppy with them. Almost so you know what you're doing. You're picking them up, but like the first time you hold your baby, you're holding the baby with a tenderness that's distinct. And I I think that's what what the mass, that same disposition is needed in the mass. It's a form of reverence. It's awe before this mystery that's before you. And you don't just sort of like, you know, pick the baby up like a football, right? You're holding this baby with love. And and that's, I think, you know, with our children too, I guess we should uh, not let the repetition of that act make us forget the reverence that we have for this creature in our midst.
0: As you're speaking in that way, I think of the act of genuflecting and how, how often have we seen, or have we maybe even ourselves gone in and genuflected to the the front when the tabernacle's over to the side or genuflected on Good Friday when there's nothing there in the, in the tabernacle and, and just done genuflecting because it's the thing you do right before you enter the pew without understanding or thinking or being conscious of the fact that I'm bowing to Christ in the tabernacle at this moment as I enter into the church.
1: Yeah, that's I think well said. Yeah, we uh it's not habit like habitual in the worst sense of that term. It's it's uh, it's thoughtful engagement and blessing ourselves and and we have to be conscious about it. So that's reverence. And it takes falling in love with Jesus there to create that reverence, right? It's not just what we do, it's, it's love.
0: You also talk about an integral Eucharistic formation. We've just now said that it's not about repetition, it's not about uh, teaching. At the same time, we do have to allow ourselves to be formed. So as we are trying to reinvigorate here in this Eucharistic revival, uh, reinvigorate our parish culture and our understanding of the Eucharist, what does, in your mind, Eucharistic formation look like?
1: Yeah, the first part is slowing down, beholding, wondering at. I was a part of a parish once that timed every Mass to try to get it under an hour. That kind of effort forgets that we should behold and wonder at. We should begin with this act of beholding of love. But of course, that beholding in love, right, um, requires you to know some things, right? It, it requires disposition. So it requires slowness. Um, and so, you know, one of the great, great texts that I always teach is Romano Guardini's Sacred Signs. And in that work, right, Gourmet, Guardini talks about, you know, uh, I had a student talk about this tonight, um, incense, right? So so why use incense? And his first reaction was, well, before Guardini talks about incense, it's going to be our prayers rising to heaven, right? It's just a representation of that. But actually, Guardini noted, like, it was like the woman who poured oil on the feet of Christ and poured out this oil um, on Christ's feet prodigally, right? That that it was excessive. And, um, you know, Guardini notes that that's what incense is. It's extra. It's excessive. It burns away as soon as you do it. Why do it? There's... You know, no sort of rationale for it. And I think part of then liturgical formation means being able to read the signs like incense and light and candles to behold them and to meditate upon them so that we see the gift of that, right? If that's the prodigality that the church approaches God with, well, how should I approach God, right? What am I willing to give or pour out of myself? And so it's to ask those questions to pause. That doesn't always mean at Mass, right? Like, um, I, I do, I'm not talking about teaching Masses or, you, you know, long didactic introductions at Mass. But formation in the essential signs and symbols so that they become prayerful, contemplative, to behold, to wonder at, to ask questions of. And that occurs throughout our whole lives, right? We, we never... We never graduate from that. It occurs throughout our lives.
0: Uh, that's one of the things that, uh, in my work in parish ministry, was so important to me is to re, re, remind I guess, uh, recall to mind, uh, for folks that formation doesn't end at uh, at your confirmation, right? There is uh, whether prayer together, whether small groups, whether whatever opportunities you have individually as laypeople or in a parish. We have to come together to grow in our faith more than just, oh, well, I go to Mass and then I go to work and then, you know, those two things are kind of separate. That we are continually pressing into and engaging in our faith through practices of prayer, practices of faith, practices of communal catechesis and formation. Uh, But beyond that, um, as important as it is to have those those moments of instruction, I think there is also something deeply formative about, and maybe this goes back to reverence, about sitting in adoration and forcing yourself to just be and and to still your thoughts and to just be in the presence of the Eucharist.
1: Yes, I think it is formative. I think it's especially formative in our age. Um, I really love this Book, uh, the Gift of Presence by a German theologian, uh, Jan Heiner Tuck, uh, which is on the thought of Saint Thomas Aquinas on the Eucharist. But the last section of it involves, you know, contemporary reflections of why Saint Thomas matters today. And he notes that you know in our own frenetic age, right, we move a lot, we're fast, we don't know how to pause or wonder at anything. The moment we have a single occasion of boredom we look upon our phones right so there you sit before the presence of the beloved and you learn to slow down right there's slowness what are you doing in adoration you're you're doing nothing it's inefficient and you're standing before the presence of the one you love right or or kneeling or sitting before the the presence of the one you love and that that is formative um i think i wrote this in another book but it's formative in another way is that God forms us in freedom to offer that return gift. You know, God doesn't appear in adoration in a marvelous, miraculous manner, right? In the Eucharistic mystery, uh, God doesn't appear and make his presence known with like fireworks and, um, you know, some sort of like beginning sports anthem, right? An anthem in a sports stadium, like, okay, the Lord has arrived. You see nothing. And in that nothing, what you're being invited to is the freedom of the gift of yourself. That's very formative, right? And to sit in that then changes the way that to sit in adoration changes the way then you approach mass, right? You're 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 there to give yourself in love, in freedom, in friendship with the Lord. Mm-hmm.
0: You talk about growing in uh, Eucharistic piety in in popular piety. Uh, There are so many different options, and of course, there's so many different uh, personalities and charisms of people. Uh, What are some some practices, some popular piety devotions that you particularly have found very helpful in your own formation?
1: Yeah, so uh, one of the reasons why I think popular piety really matters is that the Eucharist, as the Church teaches, is not everything, right? It's the source and summit, but that means there are other... If it's the source and the summit, that means there are other things along the way. And so part of that piety involves, um, right? Uh, worshiping God throughout our whole lives in all kind of material ways. And, you know, for me, like what popular piety matters to me, I think blessing, bl- blessing, right? Sort of blessing my kids, right? It's a sanctification of time. I, I, you know, at mass, I... I take the Eucharist, uh, you know, take the Eucharistic mystery I have received. I go into my home and then I offer that blessing to my kids and to my spouse. And, and by blessing, I mean quite a literal blessing, right? I I bless them as their dad uh, and say, like, may the Lord, you know, mm-hmm. be with you this evening. May Christ be with you. That recalls the presence of the Lord. It it, it remembers that God is with us, not just when we go to mass and especially with us in the real presence of the blessed sacrament, but outside of there, outside into the church. Um, Processions, another place that this happens, right? A very public place, Eucharistic processions. Now I can't run them by myself, right? But I was recently in the diocese of Knoxville and I gave a talk on Eucharistic people uh, becoming Eucharistic people and kids processed in at mass. It was a, a whole group of kids and, they were so silent before the Blessed Sacrament. And this act of piety before the Lord really invited me to deeper piety. So, these kinds of practices, this popular piety, extends importantly out from the church, into the family, into the home, into the world. Because Catholicism isn't a private religion, it's a public one. Mm-hmm.
0: We're talking today with Dr. Tim O'Malley, who is the, the Director of Education at the McGrath Institute for Church Life. The new book is Becoming Eucharistic People, The Hope and Promise of Parish Life, published here by Ave Maria Press. There's more to this conversation right after this, so don't go anywhere. Uh, we're gonna have links to not only this book, but also the study guides and the ability to get this for group study. We'll put that link over on our social media at facebook.com stepoutsidethewalls step outside the walls. Come and be a part of that ongoing conversation. And let us know what are some areas of popular piety that you participate in and how have have those things formed your Eucharistic life. We'll be right back right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with T.L. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. We're talking today with Dr. Timothy O'Malley, Director of Education at the McGrath Institute for Church Life. Uh, We're talking about the new book, Becoming Eucharistic People, The Hope and Promise of Parish Life, published by Ave Maria Press as part of the Engaging Catholicism series, part of the McGrath Institute for Church Life. Uh, Dr. O'Malley, thank you again for being with us.
1: Oh, thanks. It's as I always say, it's great to be here.
0: I want to return to the question of of popular piety, um, particularly because I, I see it as as a way as a you know as we invest ourselves in specific devotions, uh, w- perhaps with other people in our parish community. I see it as a way to to break that mindset of, well, I go to church so I can go to mass and fulfill my obligation and so my kids can get their sacraments right uh, and into I am participating as part of something bigger with a bigger group than just myself. it's not just me doing and of course the Eucharist should be uh, as the source and summit it is also that but in some way uh, popular piety maybe the 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 free flow nature of it the the fact that it's not necessarily on, so strictured and so rigorous, maybe it gives us an an impression uh that that faith is bigger than just the mass,
1: yeah, I think that's true. Faith is always bigger than the mass, and right I think during covid it revealed it. I, I don't know what your experience was. I'd love to hear mm-hmm. it um but during covid right so many people had no idea what to do but to watch live stream masses, which were at least in my assessment, highly unsatisfactory things, right? I mean, it worked for my wife and I. It was a certain comfort in hearing the comfortable words that we knew quite well, right? But it, but there were options available to us as lay Catholics with families, uh, you know, with kids. You know, we knew a way to sanctify space and time through prayer and devotion, you know, even liturgy of the hours, which isn't strictly speaking popular piety, but something that could be done. And it was kind of a, it revealed, I think, to most of the church that what we were ready for, right, we've gotten to the point where like every Sunday we want to be fed, we want to be cared for, that's very beautiful, but we actually don't know how to do other things. And we we don't know how to do those things that every Catholic should know how to do. And, you know, when the next pandemic comes along, are we going to be better prepared to pray ourselves if we can't go to mass for a little bit. And um, I, I think that's the devotional life, right? I, I think it revealed that we were pretty dependent upon forms and structures, which again, it, I wrote m- multiple books in the mass. I'm not insulting the mass, <laughs> right. but, um, but I'm sure you, you felt the same way. Partially, you know, we didn't turn to the things that, that Christians throughout time and space have dealt with when they didn't have access to the Eucharist. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, We actually had a conversation about this uh, right around Holy week of that of 2020, when everything was first coming down. And this question of how do we sanctify our space and sanctify our time as families in the midst of this. Uh, And, and there are those, those opportunities, but, but again, they felt very small. They felt uh, not, not as part of the community, but as something that I'm doing myself. Uh, and, and i look at that and i don't know that parishes have have necessarily recovered from the fact that we were all separated and doing the live stream masses uh, just this last week was probably the first time that i really felt uh, in our in our parish that things were starting to feel full again i saw what, five or six uh, infants coming up in the line for communion, and then there was the noise again, and we could hear the 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 children and the parents struggling to keep their kids uh, quiet. And it was just such a beautiful thing to hear that noise, um, because it was the a reminder of the vibrancy of of we are we're belonging to one another, and that's my noise, and I'm happy with it. Uh, we just now this last week also got back to receiving the chalice in in our, our parish, and so there was just maybe the the nascent signs of of a thing returning. But there was a sense, like when we were doing live stream masses, and then for a while we had outside masses that were um, in the parking lot. And the whole concept of what it means to be in the presence and for our kids to be sitting next to us and, and taking in all that's going on and seeing all the signs and symbols of the church around us was just kind of lost as we were you know, dodging the hornets as opposed to staring at the stained glass.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's right. Yeah. I think that those are all things that came along with the pandemic and it's good to be back and it's good to have the mass again. Um, I suspect that one of the things I hope the Eucharistic revival accomplishes is just that recognition that Eucharistic devotion continues in all different dimensions. The memory of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and the rosary, uh, the hope and glory that we experience when we simply uh, engage in all sorts of prayer. And then those just popular practices that make life fun. I mean, uh, you know, you can mark the liturgical year through all sorts of feasts and foods, and this is part of the Eucharistic memory of the church, right? It's We do this on this feast, We light candles on the anniversary of our kids' baptisms, right? right? These are the kinds of things that allow uh, Christianity to be popular of the people. And every family, every household can do this. It's why I like the epiphany blessing with chalk because I think in recent years become so popular again. It's material, it's particular. You can do it at your home. The cost is low. Your kids don't kick you during it or yell at you. (laughs) Right? Like, you you know, it's the kind of materiality of it. And it reminds you that your home and your is, 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 you know, finds its origins, is blessed in Christ.
0: And there's so many opportunities that are very simple like that. So, you know, on the feast of St. Lawrence, the deacon of the church, uh, go out and grill hot dogs, right? Because, you know, that's a sign of his martyrdom. And and you can say, oh, yeah, we're having hot dogs today because of St. Lawrence, which, I mean, it's an easy meal anyway. It doesn't take any extra additional effort. And it's a thing that you can do to tie the daily bit of life, specifically when you've got young kids, uh, into, oh, here's a special thing we did because.
1: Exactly. Yes, exactly. And that is what the pandemic should have done for us. We didn't fully learn it, but now we can still learn it without a pandemic. God be mm-hmm. praised.
0: Yeah. So this last thing we in the book, you go through these four Different ways that we can build a eucharistic culture. The last one you talk about is a culture of eucharistic solidarity. Uh, I'm I'm really interested in in how you frame that. What does what does eucharistic solidarity look like to you?
1: Yeah, so solidarity I, I think is a virtue that uh, St. John Paul II really upheld. It's not just a vague like I feel you, bro. Right, I'm so sorry you're sad. Uh, solidarity is the virtue that Your sufferings are my sufferings. Your joys are my joys. And to belong to any community, but to especially belong to a Christian community is to commit yourself to that work of solidarity, right? you're 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 expecting a child. That is a joy to me, right? Mm -hmm. That is a source of joy. It matters to me. It's part, now if we go to mass together, if we worship together, Internally, that means we actually owe each other that commitment to one another, that I know that, that I pray for you, that I'm consciously aware of your joys and sufferings. So that's like an internal solidarity. It's linked to the Eucharist, right? The God who poured himself out in love for us in solidarity, who in solidarity still gives himself to us, now we give ourselves to each other in communion but also leads outside, right? That internal dimension in the parish, it leads to the neighborhood, right? It turns out your joys and sufferings are mine, but also my neighbor, who may not even be Catholic, who may not even be Christian, their joys and sufferings are also mine. Their common good is mine, right? So in a world where there's might be racism or injustice, right? The Eucharist isn't like some sort of, first you have personal piety and then you have, Social justice. No, to adore Christ in the Eucharist is to recognize that that transforms every one of my relationships with my neighbor. Whereas Benedict, I think, brilliantly said in, uh, Saint, uh, you know, Pope Benedict XVI said in God is Love, a Eucharist that does not result in the concrete practice of love is intrinsically fragmented, right? It requires this, it necessitates this. That's solidarity. So if your parish is like, oh, man, we have beautiful liturgies, but we have no idea what are the political or social issues that my neighbors deal with, right? Bad news, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if there are people in your neighborhood who are like, you, you know, struggling to pay their rent and bad news, struggling to eat, to, to they should be your friends. These are our friends. These are the friends that are our disciples. And that's the external solidarity, too.
0: So, in a place, in a world where we, in a world, right (laughs) as they say in the the movie trailers, uh, in a world where we feel so fragmented, we feel so polarized, and we feel disconnected from those even who sit next to us, we might even not even know the names of the people in front of us or behind us on a given week. What are maybe some some internal steps or some positive external steps that we can take? Because it might feel like too big a, a a chasm to cross in one fell swoop what are some mo- uh, so, some integral steps that we can make to move ourselves towards solidarity if we feel the absence of it and if we ourselves are unskilled in the practice of it
1: well i think uh tl you already mentioned um small groups i think small groups are essential for parishes to get to know each other to you know i i've been to parishes that perhaps artificially deal with this by doing some fake introduction at the beginning of mass, like go say hello to someone, right? Right. Hello. It's good to see you. I don't know anything about you and that. That's sort of fake, but small groups, you share your lives with one another, you know, especially if it's mixed, right? It's not just community people who know each other, but people who are across the parish, like, oh, I didn't know that about you. And this is, you know, you have to get to know individual persons. And so I think small groups are really key in this. Um, I also think getting to know our neighbors are key, right? Parishes and parish boundaries are key. That's why quite quite practically I go to the parish that I belong to. I mean, I also like the parish. I find it beautiful. But I go to it because those are my neighbors. I actually know my neighbor's joys and sufferings. And a parish, at least from a Catholic perspective, could be every single human being in that boundary, whether they actually are Catholic or not. I know them, right? I know who who they, what their joys are, what their sufferings are. Um, and so I think that's really practical. And it, by the way, if you live in a neighborhood where it's hard to know your neighbors, that's probably step one, is to getting to know your neighbors. Um, hold a barbecue for your neighbors, get to know one another, hang out on the front porch instead of the back porch, um, you know, extend out into the neighborhood so that we enter into this communion. I think people long for that. That's what the pandemic revealed. We are not creatures made to be alone. We are creatures made to be together.
0: Yeah. Do you have a story of of that kind of outreach and in the difference it made for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, uh, it's a story of my neighborhood. I mean, I was writing books during the pandemic, which was possible because there was nothing else happening. Right. And my neighborhood became for me the place where, we learn to take care of each other. And, you know, we're all Christians in the neighborhood. We're not all Catholics. Uh, many of us attend my parish. But here I am. I mean, I'm speaking to you at 10 o'clock in the evening on a random day. Of course, this is a podcast. So you could be watching it at any time. But that means my wife is at home with my kids. And she's been at home with the kids all day. This is like my third major event today. Folks in the neighborhood all helped Kara today today, during this day where I was all away. Um, She helps everyone else. Our neighbor's husband is traveling right now. Um, We hung out together. We shared lives together. We shared the difficulty of the pandemic together. If someone's ill or sick, we're over at each other's house right away, delivering what's needed. To me, it, it is a consequence of my Eucharistic life, right? To go to mass, to receive communion wants me to I want to bring that communion of love to every part in every neighborhood. So, that's pretty practical is my neighborhood. I love my neighborhood. I think neighborhoods matter. I think that's often the place where the gospel is best encountered and preached.
0: Yeah. Last question for you tonight is uh, about the Eucharistic Revival. This is a uh, the first time in 50 years that we've had this kind of Eucharistic Congress. Um it used to happen on a regular basis, and now we're returning to it again. Uh, you're part of that planning committee with the bishops. What are your hopes uh, that that we'll get out of this as as communities, as individuals? And where, where can we find resources to help ourselves uh, more fully participate in this?
1: Yeah, so I think there's two things that really the Eucharistic Revival are focused upon. There is the national event, the Eucharistic Congress. We must be honest that very few Catholics will be able to go to that. I mean, if 80,000 Catholics go to that, that's but a margin or fraction of the Catholics throughout the country. I mean, many of them will experience an encounter with the Lord in the global communion of the church that large gatherings facilitate for us, right? If you go to a World Youth Day or something else, you experience that. What I really hope for folks is that they actually get to know their parish better, that they increase reverence in their local parish and that they experience a deeper formation in their parish. They encounter Eucharistic processions and encourage worship in the family, in the home, and they love their neighbor. You know, what resources are there for this? I mean, my publisher will hate me for this because I think my <laughs> book is a resource. I think the resource is just normal parish life. It's, it that's the resource, right? It's the resource is a serious reflection on what it means to be a parish. I mean, you can buy my book, you don't have to, um, but I think that's what I really hope. And that's why it's its not just the Congress, right? It's a renewal process for a polarized church, a church that often is angry and, um, you know, we don't trust each other, we don't trust the bishops, the bishops don't trust us lay people, we don't trust anyone. We don't trust the left. We don't trust the right. What can bring us together but the love of Christ poured out from the side of the cross given, right? Like, that's what I want. And practically, that means we have to learn to love. That's it. That's the whole thing. And that's why no book is going to accomplish it. No other resource is going to accomplish it. It's love. Love from a heart wounded by the gift of love.
0: I love that. Love from a heart Wounded by the gift of love, uh, I think that really is is the sum of it. Uh, but if you are maybe having a little hard time wrestling with that idea or, or trying to figure out what that means, uh, I invite you to again meditate on that gift of love that you've received. And of course, the the highest picture we have of that, uh, the highest sacrament we have of that is the Eucharist, uh, which is again that that representation of Christ's sacrifice, that gift of love to us. And if you want to understand that a little bit better, maybe have something to meditate on, I am going to give you a couple of books, a couple of resources. Uh, one is Dr. Timothy O'Malley's Bored Again Catholic, How the Mass Could Save Your Life. That's on uh, Our Sunday Visitor. Uh, there's a couple of others, both from the same series on Ave Maria Press. It's from the Engaging Catholicism series from the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. The first is called Real presence. What does it mean and why does it matter? And the second is the book we've been talking about today, Becoming Eucharistic People, The Hope and Promise of Parish Life. Again, that's available on Ave Maria Press. We've got a link to it over in our social media because you can get it for yourself individually, but there's also bulk pricing. If you wanted to do something at your parish, uh, get the free study guide, go through it with a group of people and wrestle with these ideas together in communion and community Uh, as a step on the journey uh, towards building that Eucharistic culture in your own parish. Dr. Tim O'Malley, thanks so much for being with us today.
1: Oh, thanks. And thanks always for having me. It's always great to be with you. Uh, You're the best.
0: If you missed any part of my conversation with Dr. O'Malley and you want to go back and listen to it again or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. There you can listen to today's episode, share it with your friends. And if you're looking for more, have no fear. There's always more. Each and every week we record an extra segment that we make available to all those who support the show through Patreon. Our Patreon support community helps keep us on the air. And in gratitude, we record that extra segment with a deeper dive into the topic So if you'd like to learn more about that, go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link in in the menu bar. Now, let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of our Verbum library launching up. Verbum helps you read scripture in light of church teaching by putting the magisterium at your fingertips, linking scripture to the fathers and doctors of the church, to the catechism, magisterial documents, biblical commentaries, and so much more. You can learn more at verbum.com. I'm struck by, and, and, and in our readings today, I really want to focus on the idea of, of loving one another, love, from a heart wounded by the gift of love. What does it mean for us to love one another as Christ has loved us? What does it mean for us to love our neighbor as ourselves? Both our gospel and our reading from church history today are going to address that. The gospel today comes from uh, the gospel of Matthew chapter 5. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of the Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends the rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. And as always, Jesus looks at what was said, and he raises it higher. He raises the stakes. He says, «Status quo is not enough» you have to do what you can only do by the grace of god these things that we're asking they are they're difficult they're beyond our natural selves it is a supernatural thing to look at the person who persecutes you and to love them to pray for those who persecute you to love your enemies but it's through that love love from a heart wounded by love by the gift of love it's through that love that God breaks into this world in a real and ongoing, lasting way. And we hear the same thing from the sermon by St. Gregory of Nazianzen, where he says this, recognize to whom you owe the fact that you exist, that you breathe, that you understand, that you are wise, and above all, that you know God and hope for the kingdom of heaven and the vision of glory now darkly as in a mirror, but then with greater fullness and purity. You have been made a son of God, co-heir with Christ. Where did you get all this, and from whom? Let me turn to what is of less importance, the visible world around us. What benefactor has enabled you to look out upon the beauty of the sky, the sun in its course, the circle of the moon, the countless number of stars with the harmony and the order that are theirs, like the music of a harp? who has blessed you with the rain with the art of husbandry with different kinds of food with the with the arts with houses with laws with states with a life of humanity and culture with a friendship and the easy familiarity of kinship who has given you dominion over animals those that are tame and those that provide you with food who has made you lord and master of everything on earth in short who has endowed you with all that makes man superior to all other living creatures? Is it not God, who asks you now in turn to show yourself generous above all other creatures and for the sake of all other creatures? Because we have received from him so many wonderful gifts, will we not be ashamed to refuse him this one thing only, our generosity? Though he is God and Lord, he is not afraid to be known as our Father. Shall we, for our part, repudiate those who are our kith and kin? Brethren and friends, let us never allow ourselves to misuse what has been given to us by God's gift. If we do, we shall hear St. Peter say, Be ashamed of yourself for holding on to what belongs to someone else. Resolve to imitate God's justice, and no one will be poor. Let us not labor to heap up and hoard riches while others remain in need, If we do, the prophet Amos will speak out against us with sharp and threatening words. Come now, you that say, when will the new moon be over so that we may start selling? When will the Sabbath be over that we may start opening our treasures? Let us put into practice the supreme and primary law of God. He sends down rain on just and sinful alike and causes the sun to rise on all without distinction. To all earth's creatures, he has given the broad earth, the springs, the rivers, and the forests. He has given to the, the air to the birds and the waters to those who live in water. He has given abundantly to all the basic needs of life, not as a private possession, not restricted by law, not divided by boundaries, but as common to all, amply and in rich measure. His gifts are not deficient in any way because he wanted to give equality quality of blessing to a quality of worth, and to show the abundance of his generosity. That reading again comes from a sermon by Saint Gregory of Nazianzen. How are we transmitting the love that we have received, the love that God has given us to those around us? At the end of John, he says uh, toward, to, to his disciples, A new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And further, he says, all will know that you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. And so as we approach this Lent and we are seeking to understand and more fully appropriate the love of God through the mystery of the Eucharist, through this Eucharistic culture, as we... Meditate on that, and we begin to experience and understand and receive the love of God more fully. Then let us, from that love we have received, go out and love as well. Love from a heart wounded by the gift of love. This is my prayer as we approach this season of Lent, that this would echo in our minds as we move towards the joy of Easter. you. Yeah. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today's show was brought to you by Phil and Tina Parker and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com. Click that Patreon link to learn more. Come join the ongoing conversation over on social media, Facebook.com slash Step Outside the Walls. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This podcast is part of the Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.